Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today I'm going to tell you part one of the Lori Vallow Daybell trial. Today I'm drinking some iced coffee with some French vanilla premier protein shake in it. And today I'm drinking a Red Bull. Yes, we're doing great. <laughs> so pour yourselves a cup or a mug or a glass of whatever it is you're drinking. And let's dive in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. All right, friends, you are in for... Another doozy of a couple of episodes related to the Vallow Daybell case. Now, if you haven't listened to the coverage we did on the actual case a little while ago, a few weeks ago, we cover the circumstances leading up to the trial of Lori Vallow Daybell. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today is her trial and some of the information and evidence that came up in it and additionally what she ended up being found on. She was being tried for murder in the deaths of her children, 16-year-old Tylee Ryan and 7-year-old Joshua J.J. Vallow. Additionally, she was being tried for conspiracy to commit murder in the deaths of her current husband, Chad Daybell's first wife, Tammy Daybell. Additionally, she was accused of stealing social security payments issued for the children, which would come with a grand theft charge if she was found guilty. So she's being charged with three murders, correct? Correct. And this trial, which was held in Boise, Idaho, is for the is in relation to the murders of Tammy Daybell and then Lori's two kids, Tylee and JJ. However, later on, she will also be tried for her involvement in her ex-husband or I guess late husband's death and that would be in Arizona and so we'll probably touch on that a little bit later depending on how much comes out of the trial or we might just tack it on when Chad Daybell gets tried because him and Lori are to be tried separate. Also just a disclaimer if you listen to our other episodes you know this Um, and if you haven't listened to those definitely go back and listen but as you could tell from what I just read deals with crimes against children so just a heads up on that. As I mentioned, Lori was tried in Boise, Idaho. Her trial started on April 3rd of this year, 2023, and ended May 12th, 2023. It was a very big trial as it was a pretty big case. And something interesting I wanted to note here up front is this was a pretty nationally known case. It's one I've been following since it started to unravel years ago. And apparently they had a lot of issues trying to find jurors who didn't already know about the case and who could be impartial. So much so that they apparently summoned 1,800 potential jurors and had them complete a 20-page questionnaire 
in hopes of like, you know, filing out some of the people that would not be able to be impartial in this case. And then they end up with 12 jurors and six alternates. And so what I'm going to do, it's going to be probably a little bit of back and forth, just conversationally between Erica and I, you know, recounting some of the stuff that had come up in the case. I do have some new evidence that I will bring to you guys. I think a lot more of the new evidence is going to come up in part two, where I get into some of the like physical evidence that they find. A lot of this episode is going to deal with um, circumstantial evidence, which this case does really heavily rely on. The prosecutors, and I'm going to talk about two more than others, um, Lindsay Blake and Rob Wood, were prosecuting against Lori for the state and they were trying to kind of paint this overall picture of Lori and that's really because this case is a little convoluted in the sense that you're looking at a woman who supposedly could have been viewed to be manipulated by this man Chad Daybell who had these religious affiliations and so it's trying to decipher what role she actually played in the deaths of her children and potentially Tammy Daybell as well. So what I'm going to talk about is this overarching theme that prosecutors really honed in on, and that is that Laura used money, power, and sex to kind of control the situation and get what she wanted. Essentially, they're saying that she's kind of using her appeal to manipulate people in her inner circle. A lot of the deaths that occurred surrounding Lori and Chad all had a monetary incentive to it. And this is going to obviously come up when I talk about her late husband's case as well. Um, She very shortly after he was killed in quotes self-defense by Lori's brother Alex Cox, she was trying to pull life insurance out on him. And he had already switched her from beneficiary, probably very smartfully. So they were having marital issues way up until that point. And he was in fear for his life and the, the welfare of his children at that point as well. Do you know if she knew that he had changed her from beneficiary? I My guess is no, since she went and tried to pull the money, tried to collect the money. Oh, that's true, and yeah. that's when she found I mean, out. Okay. Something I think we can go ahead and talk about a little bit is... The fact that they're looking at Lori as kind of this like cold, emotionless person. And since we're talking about her late husband, I want to talk a little bit about what the prosecutors brought up in the wake of this situation. And so something I do want to talk about while we're talking about her late husband, Charles, is the fact that when he was killed by Lori's brother, Alex Cox, in quote, self-defense, Lori didn't seem like she cared at all. She very casually had left the situation, took her kids to Burger King, dropped JJ off at school, got Tylee some flip-flops, came back. And then we have the police cam, um, the body footage, put those words right. Sorry, I mixed them up. Not you, Mike. Just I'm telling my listeners to put it right in their head. Um, (laughs) But she really did just seem fine. Like she was giggling and laughing. She didn't seem distraught, not in a way you would feel if your brother had killed your husband. Yeah. I mean, in this instance, there's not only is your husband dead by your brother, but there's also the fact that your brother just killed somebody. Like, I feel like there'd be some sort of emotion to go through your head in this instance, like a little bit at least. Right. I don't know. I I always struggle because we always talk about trying not to judge a person's response to a traumatic situation but there's just some responses that 
I think it's hard to argue and to say that that would be normal and it doesn't look suspicious. And I think this is an instance where it looks a little suspicious and I, I don't really know how to swing it in any other way. A hundred percent. It's at the very least very sketchy. And especially when you consider some of the other things that had led up to this. And those include, you know, Lori and Chad having communication, discussing people they know in their life as being light or dark or ranking them on this spiritual level of whether they're going to be saved after this supposed, I don't know, end of time or apocalypse happens or not. And they're saying people are possessed by demons and the only way to save their souls is to kill them. And so when you look at all of this, you can see where they're pushing that envelope to justify murder. The interesting thing about it when you really look at it is, okay, sure, they had these beliefs, but was it almost a justification that they were making in their mind to kill these people? And then, you know, it's suspicious that they're, let's say they really believe this. You can't help but look at the fact that immediately after or sometimes, you know, for a long period of time, they were taking advantage of the money left from these people or at least trying to. In the instance of Charles, Lori obviously couldn't pull money because from his life insurance, but she did have his card and she was using his card. She used his card to buy her wedding ring for her and Chad's wedding and some other stuff on his Amazon account. I just feel like that's a little insensitive and like a, a step too far. How long was it after Charles was murdered that her and Chad got married? It wasn't long, was it? No, I couldn't give you the exact timeline. I do know and can tell you that her and Chad got married in Hawaii when her kids were like missing and police were searching for them. And the fact that the kids ended up found murdered in in Chad's backyard, that points to how much they really, you know, cared about the kids which was obviously very little. It You wouldn't expect a mom to have her kids missing if she really didn't know anything and then be going and getting married. I agree. I, there, it, when your child is missing, especially, you know, those, those first few months, right? We've talked about it before. There becomes a point when a loved one or a child goes missing where you have to continue on with your life. Not move on, but you have to continue on. And it's very typical for those first few months to just be so focused and hyper fixated on finding your children or finding your loved one that the last thing that you'd be thinking of is like, oh, well, I need to go get married to this guy now, even though my husband just died recently ish. I mean, it couldn't have been that long. So within a few years it was months, I believe months. Okay, yeah. The timeline on this is a lot and there's so much information and I've not personally looked into it. So this is just all from Abby's words. Well, yeah. And, you know, something else that comes up a lot within this this court case is all the email exchanges, the text message exchanges, conversations with authorities and friends that occurred. And it's all kind of pointing to the same narrative that Chad and Lori were supposedly believing in this ideology that the end of the world was going to happen and Chad was going to lead it was something like 100,000 or 400,000 people who were chosen afterwards which inherently is twisting the idea of the LDS church which is where they started in there were so many lies that were said and 
one of the ones that came up in the trial that I thought was interesting was from a detective or a police officer who went to Chad's home after JJ had been reported missing and was like, can we have Lori's number? And Chad said he didn't have it and that he even, that he barely knew Lori. And at the time this occurred, they were already married. That's odd. Yeah, you'd think he would probably have her number and know her if they'd been married two weeks prior to this. I mean, if somebody said, like, do you know her? Like, I guess maybe there's bits and pieces that he doesn't know about his wife as a person. But if somebody walked up to me and said, do you know Abby Marshall? I'd be like, yeah. I mean, also, we've known each other for a lot longer than they have. But anyways, my point is, like, you don't get married to somebody unless you unless you at least know their name. So or 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 maybe Lori had given him a fake name this whole time. I'm sure that's what happened. Yep, Erica solved it. (laughs) And with that, let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor. Let's talk about a few other pieces of circumstantial evidence that came up in the trial that were kind of of note to me. And one of these had to do with the idea that Lori was telling people she knew where the kids were and they were safe when everyone was looking for them. A lot of people didn't believe it for obvious reasons. It all seemed sketchy. They also look at some timelines and some evidence to kind of get an idea of when Tylee and JJ were actually killed. And an example of this is that in November 8th in 2019, an email was sent to a realtor in Hawaii and it was from Chad and he was looking for a home. And within this email, he specifically says that they have no pets and no children. And at this point, JJ and Tylee were missing and not confirmed dead. And so Chad is essentially saying like, hey, we've got no pets, no kids. Is the owner interested in like leasing the property to us? Which I mean, are we ignoring the two children that that Lori's had for a few years now, I guess? Yeah, unless they didn't have to anymore. I'm assuming that's what it is. But still, like, I know that this man, Chad, was incredibly narcissistic and cocky. But to the extent that he was like, I'm just going to. Like, did he think that nobody was going to know? I guess he just probably assumed that they were never going to get caught and that they were never going to run into this issue where him lying and denying that they even have kids was going to ever come up. He probably just thought it was fine. But it's still incredible to me that he was that cocky, I guess, for lack of a better word. I don't know another word to say. Yeah, it just points to like his extreme narcissism that he had. And I'm sure that's going to come up in his trial. And that is easily identifiable by him essentially saying he is Jesus Christ and going to like lead everybody when the idea he took is that it's going to be Christ. And he's like, nope, it's actually me, Chad. And I'm like, okay, Chad, just who you want to follow to the end of times. Another couple pieces that I definitely do want to talk about comes from information from people who were friends or knew Lori and Chad and kind of pulling some comments that they had heard from Lori and Chad that they thought was weird or concerning and especially looking back how concerning and you know I mentioned that we talk about that excel sheet where they're numbering people from light and dark and on a scale and they had identified both the kids as dark and Somebody who comes into play a lot and did testify is Melanie Gibb, who was a former friend of Lori. 
And when they were looking for the kids, Lori actually told authorities that they were with Melanie and Melanie was like, I don't have them. And they have this conversation and and Lori makes some comment that she's kind of concerned about Melanie's soul and whether or not she's been turned to their side or a demon. But aside from all of that, she's testifying and talking about talking about Lori specifically telling Melanie in September of 2019 that JJ had become, quote, dark and that Tylee had become dark even earlier. Another thing that comes from Melanie adjacent is from her husband, David Warwick. He was kind of discussing the last time he saw JJ, which police and investigators do believe was like the last time JJ was seen alive. And this was on September 22nd, 2019, when they were visiting Lori's apartment. The next morning, I guess, Lori told David that JJ was having like an episode. So if you guys remember, JJ was autistic. And so, you know, people with autism, they sometimes they don't act in a quote unquote normal to society way. Lori is kind of taking it and twisting something weird because she's saying that JJ was climbing on the fridge and cabinets and that she had no control over him and that he's knocking over pictures of Jesus Christ. And she's kind of putting it in this way that it was like a demon doing it because he was quote unquote dark at this point. I'm trying to figure out how to respond to that because so he was seven years old at this time and they had gotten custody of him. Like she had gotten custody of him when he was a baby, right? Yes. So she'd had like seven years is my point. That's what I'm getting at to become accustomed to the inner workings of an autistic child. And she suddenly wants to decide that him stemming is that of an of a, a demon possession, and it could no way be related to his intellectual disability. Yeah, it's just another way they're like as trying to assign these dark and light kind of ideologies to people they know. Well, it just pisses me off because it's a literal child, and I've heard these like it's like a similar theory or idea up from people that any sort of mental illness means demon possession which is obviously so incredibly wrong and it is mainly due to a lot of lack of education but this just i think pisses me off a step further because it's a literal seven-year-old child and i think it's also making me really mad because i know how it ends the last thing i'm going to kind of touch on and talk about in this episode before the next episode where we really start to get into some of the more physical evidence that we have in regards to Alex Cox, Lori's brother. As we know, he passed away before all of this really starts to unravel and it was due to natural causes. It was a health issue that ran in the family. Right before he died, he was married to Zuluma Pestenis, and I apologize if I did not say that right. She was talking about one time shortly before he died, when she had actually heard that they were going to exhume Tammy Daybell's body. And if you listen to our other episodes, and you kind of know this case, Tammy's death was ruled by natural causes, I guess. And she was buried. The kid, her kids didn't think anything of it. Chad collects the life insurance policy, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. All said and done, nothing comes about it until this case keeps you know, snowballing and they're finding the bodies of the kids and they're going, hmm, 
This is a little suspicious, especially since we know from conversations that Tammy was also seen as like a demon or dark or whatever word you want to put with it, according to Chad. There are multiple instances between Lori and Chad's ongoing relationship, which started well before the deaths of their spouses, where they're talking about, you know, being together and how they're married in different lives. And there's this obvious affair happening. And with all this... They decide to exhume Tammy's body and kind of get an idea of if there might have been some other type of cause to her death. And anyway, Zulema is kind of like, why would they be doing that? And she's asking Alex, like, do you know what, why would they do that if she died of natural causes? And she's like, "Did do you know something? Do you have anything to do with this? And Alex says no. And apparently was quiet and unresponsive and then says, quote, I think I am being their fall guy, end quote. And she's asking, I'll just quote it, quote, fall guy for what? What have you done that you would be the fall guy, end quote. And she kept asking him and he just wasn't answering. And he actually passed away the next day. And so she brought this to trial and she's talking about it. And I think that very much points to the fact that even Alex was kind of like, whoa, like maybe I got manipulated by Lori and Chad as well. And it's very interesting to see how this played out because if he hadn't died, I wonder how it would have been getting spun onto him. Yeah, you know, in the first couple episodes that we did, I really didn't like Alex Cox as a person. Um, Not that I'm a huge fan of him now, but I do feel a little bit differently because I, he probably was slightly manipulated and the fact that he's having this conversation does make me wonder if he felt differently but also maybe he, I and I don't know maybe he was potentially just interested in making sure that he didn't get in trouble for it so I wonder if it was more like he was afraid he was going to get in trouble or if he was starting to feel like he regretted what he had done and I don't think we'll ever have a real answer to that yeah i agree with that and something i'm very curious to see because this trial is obviously focusing on Lori and her kind of ways of kind of manipulating using money power sex and i'm curious to see how different chad's trial is in the way of using this religious idea this religion that he's twisted and how it's kind of like this kind of cult mentality that he's holding over people, you know, threatening that if you don't do this, you're going to be damned forever. And if you want to live, this is how you do it. And so I'm curious to see how in depth they go with his religious aspect of it during the trial and the manipulation piece that you're mentioning just now versus this one where it's kind of like, she was just cold and didn't give a shit about anyone other than herself and Chad. When you first told me about how Alex died in the original one, I don't remember if I said anything on the podcast or if that was just a separate conversation. I thought it was incredibly suspicious that he died the way that he did and when he did. And this conversation that he had with his wife makes me wonder if he potentially was about to go to police about things that were happening and Lori and Chad somehow got word of it or heard or understood maybe there was some sort of confrontation or something and maybe his death isn't as innocent as it sounds even if Lori wasn't involved like I could see Chad being like okay this could ruin this ideation that I am this person and it could make Lori feel differently about me and he 
was maybe more involved in Alex's death than we are aware of, which I know sounds like a major conspiracy theory, but it is something that I remember thinking about when you told me about his death in the first or second episode, whenever that was. And now this conversation is making me think about it again a little bit more. Yeah, I have to agree. I often think about that as well, especially considering Tammy died, quotes, died of natural causes or whatever. Obviously, we find that out different. Now, I don't know if they did an autopsy on Alex or not or how it was determined how he died. I really don't know the details, I'll be honest. But that comes to my mind all the time because you can't really discredit all the other suspicious deaths that were happening around them. Alrighty, I think we'll end it here for part one. And for part two, we're going to talk a little bit more about what we found out about Tammy's death, some physical evidence and information that comes up from finding the children's bodies. And we're going to chat a little bit about the defense and how the trial wrapped up. So join us next week for part two of this case. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.